Um, let me ask you, what did you have for breakfast this morning? What did I? I didn't have breakfast, but I haven't eaten yet. I haven't eaten all day. It's like late afternoon. I know, dude. I know. I know. It just didn't feel hungry today. I don't know why. You know why? Probably because I had Captain Crunch cereal at like 1 a.m. Hi, I'm Tim. Welcome to We're Only Human, a podcast of stories of ordinary people welcoming change into their life. Sometimes that change is our own doing. Sometimes that change barrels into our lives, whether we like it or not. This isn't a three-minute interview that you see in your favorite late-night talk show. We're going deep here. We're going deep into who we are and how we grow. And we're often asking questions that my guests have not been asked before. The goal is simple. We can learn from each other. We're not perfect. We're not alone. We're only human. Today, I'm joined by Jeff Harry. He's a son, a play enthusiast, speaker and coach at Rediscover Your Play, where he helps individuals and companies rediscover who they are through play. He's worked with companies like Google, Microsoft, Southwest Airlines, the NFL, all sorts of companies to help them and their staff infuse more play into their day-to-day also spoke at a bunch of international conferences, including Inbound, South by Southwest. And Jeff, I think I invited you here because I feel like I'm in the process of rediscovering myself and I love to play and be creative. So you seem like the guy to talk to. Ooh, let's yeah. get into it. Yeah. I have to ask you though, you are someone, and I want to learn more about how you became so enthused about play. But if you are someone like that, you seem to have gotten the dream job early early in your career. You worked at Toys R Us. I did work at Toys R Us, dude. So wait, the first question has to be, why would you ever leave Toys R Us? It's full of toys. Oh, I love that you start with that. That is a good one. (laughs) So, so I'll, I'll go, I'll do, I'll do the, the quick version. Um, fifth grade, I saw big. Do you remember big? You know, I don't know if I've seen Big. Okay, so I'll just briefly. I feel Big slightly embarrassed. Was with Tom it Hanks. feels like a must-see. Yeah, Tom Hanks was like, he's like 10 years old or maybe 11, and he wishes to become Big. He asks Zoltar, can he become an adult? And then he becomes this adult. Um, and the part of that movie, I don't really care about that part, but the part that was so awesome was he then goes to F.A.O. Schwartz, starts dancing on a piano as an adult, even though he's still a kid, and the CEO... Of this toy company is like, I like you. You should work for this toy company. So then he starts working for this toy company and he starts telling the CEO what are the fun toys and what are the boring toys? Because a lot of the office was like, we must make toys that are like, you know, we're, we're making a transformer that, that turns into a building. And they're like, well, how, how? And he's like, how is that fun? So he would just play with toys and tell the CEO, this is what we should make. And I was like, dude, that's a job. Oh my gosh, that's a job. I need that job. <laughs> so when I was in fifth grade, I started writing toy companies on my word processor. That's how old I am. I had a word processor, not a typewriter. Between the computer, there was the word processor. Um, and I would write letters to toy companies from fifth grade all the way until I was 15. And they started off as short letters being like, hire me. So then long letters of like, 
let me tell you all of the ideas you need to do for your company. Um, and then eventually a toy company wrote me back and was like, it was like cap toys. They made crossbows and catapults. And they were like, you should go into mechanical engineering. And I was like, okay, I'll follow this random letter and do that. So I did that. <laughs> why not? <laughs> I did that. Yeah, why not? Um, and then when I graduated, I had no job, but I moved to New York, snuck into Toy Fair, trying to get a job, applied to all these toy companies, didn't get any. And then I remember writing a letter to Toys R Us. And this is why this is so interesting. This was around like 2000, 2001. You know, so like 9-11, I think it just, or yeah, I think it had just happened um, or around or be a little bit before then, but it was still like a chaotic time. Like the, the crash had happened and all this stuff, you know, Y2K. Um, and I remember writing a letter, a long letter to their HR department. I was like, what you need to do is you need to open up your toys and play with them in the, in the store. Because if you allow kids to do that, you'll sell more toys. And it was this really long letter. And it got me, a, it got me an interview. And I remember going to the interview. And then I uh, applied to get some job. I didn't get that job. But then I got some other job with Toys R Us. And I was like, oh my gosh, now I'm with Toys R Us. It is the dream. And it was horrible. I was in a cubicle with those car. I know why they put carpet on the wall so you don't lose your mind. And nobody was playing at Toys R Us, at least at the corporation. And then 9-11 happened, and I remember sitting in my cubicle in New Jersey. I lived in Brooklyn. I was commuting two hours one way each day. And I remember like watching those towers fall, and I was like, what am I doing here? I'm going to die here. I don't want to die in a cubicle. And I was like, this is horrible. Um, so I remember staying with Toys R Us, but I said, I have to leave this cubicle job. And I started to work for them at their flagship store in 42nd Street, Times Square in New York. And that is where I played with toys underneath a T-Rex from Jurassic Park. And that was my job for a year from like October of that year all the way to the next year. I basically played with toys and kids inside this flagship store that had a Ferris wheel. Had you seen... Because you wrote to Toys R Us and said, hey, we should have people playing with the toys in the store. Had you seen other toy stores doing that? Or had you experienced that? The only that? people, the only one I had sort of seen was F.A.O. Schwartz because they had that piano. But they didn't have a lot of interactive stuff. So it's so interesting now that I go to like, you know, F.A.O. Schwartz and there's so many interactive things. But but yeah, so, time, so Toys R Us was like leading the charge at this point, right? They hired all, I was a product demonstrator. I was getting paid thirteen twenty-five an hour, which was a huge amount of money compared to everyone else that worked there that got paid like 10. And I was having such a good time. And then right after, I remember part of getting the gig was you had to do an interview where everyone sang the Toys R Us song and you had to sing it with such passion <laughs> whoever sang with more passion got through to the next round. I was like, what is this? But anyway, I remember right after um, Black Friday and after Christmas, they said we were a community. They said they, we were a team and then they laid off everybody. Um, and I remember I was one of the few people left. And then I wrote this manifesto and I tried to unionize the store. <laughs> 
You tried to unionize the store? I tried to unionize the flagship Toys R Us store. I feel like that should go on your resume. <laughs> I know. Maybe I should put that in there. <laughs> oh, I haven't told this story that much, but yeah, literally I did what Jerry Maguire. I made, I printed out this manifesto. It was like maybe seven or eight pages long explaining like how you should not treat employees and how you should treat employees. And this is really messed up what they do. And, you know, let's figure out a way in which we can do stuff better. I wish I had a copy of that now. But anyway, I printed out so many copies and I stuffed them in every mailbox in at Toys R Us. And then everyone thought I was unionizing the store. That's fantastic. It was super weird, dude. And then I remember then for the rest of the time, I think I did that in January, February, uh, March, April, May, they just made it so uncomfortable for me. Every time I was around anyone, where it was a group of people, the one of the managers would come and try to break us up. Um, and then I eventually just left. And I moved to the Bay Area. I admire how you just go for it. I mean, you initially write that letter to Toys R Us that eventually gets you the interview. And then when all kind of goes south, you you express how you feel and, and I mean, you just go for it. Where does this come from? I know I your guess. parents are... I, mean, I never realized that. Look, you're, you're making me have epiphanies, yeah. man. <laughs> well, I'm curious. I'm always curious where that comes from. And, and being a parent myself, I'm so cognizant of how much we learn from our parents that we don't actually realize. So I know your dad was a cardiologist. Mom was a nurse. Yeah. Are, are these people that were like, Standing up for what they believe in and not afraid to take that step forward and take risks, or did oh, you man, develop I that love elsewhere? That question. Oh, you're <laughs> making me uh, think of amazing things about my parents. No, you're absolutely right. My dad, you know, grew up on a farm in a small island of St. Vincent, 100,000 people. You know, most people didn't even. When he, he was one of the first doctors ever to make it in the U.S. from that island. You know, it was even a challenge for him to go because his mom didn't want him. His mom couldn't even imagine what it would look like for him to go and become a doctor somewhere else because he, but because she wanted him to stay at home, be a draftsman, then be a teacher and just stay there. And the same thing with my mom, like during the Vietnam War, she was one of the uh, influx of Filipinos that came to the U.S. And they ironically met like in the coldest city in America and Minneapolis or St. or St. not St. Paul, like Rochester, Minnesota at the Mayo Clinic um, in an operating room. And, and I think that's what tied them is like, both of them were out there on their own. They were just trying to figure it out. They were immigrants. They dealt with a huge amount of racism, but they just didn't even have time to even pay attention to it because they were like, we're, you know, we just want to make, we just want to make it here so that we can send money back to our families and help them you know, also be successful. So yeah, I guess they just both went for it. Like I remember my dad went to University of West Indies and he flew there not knowing if he had gotten in because like for some reason he had to go there and then they were going to let him know there. And it was like, it was such a big risk for him. And my mom, when she came here, she was just like 20, 21. Like she, she was a kid. So yeah. I guess they just went for it. Yeah, you're right. I can't believe that, man. I'm going to tell them that. I'm going to tell my mom. <laughs> you're going to tell them thank you. <laughs> I'm be like, thanks, mom. Like, well, I could see that. I mean, if your parents are, you know, it sounds like they were great role models. They were hardworking. They were always there, you know, involved. And you, I think 
Because my next question is, so you're someone who, you know, you get this idea in your head at fifth grade of like, oh my gosh, like I realize I see it in the movie. That's my passion. That's something I'm just excited about. So having parents like yours, it sounds like maybe they were like, okay with that, like go after it. But I could also see going the other way. Like there are doctors, they're in the medical field. That's a different level of, you know, education and uh, license and all that stuff. I could also see them looking at your dream and being like, uh, no, why don't you go do, you know, get a quote unquote real job? Oh, no, no. He hated my dad hated my job. <laughs> oh, really? So he did go that yeah, way? The whole day. He wasn't like, <laughs> go for it. He's an immigrant dad. Come on. I played with toys for a living, man. Every job. It was so interesting because he wanted me because he became a doctor. So then he was just like, yeah, you should go become a doctor, right? So like both my sisters majored in pre-med, both dropped out, became teachers. He was a teacher at one point, but they were, you know. Um, but yeah, I think the whole time he definitely was thinking, you should do this. But, you know, but I think they still gave me the, they didn't encourage me to be like, follow your dreams, follow your passion. They just were like, all right, I guess you're doing that. <laughs> you know, um, and even if they even if they did discourage me, I don't know, by that point, I don't know what it was. Like I just had this audacity. Because later on I moved to the Bay Area, right? I worked for some other toy companies, including including Sega. Ugh, gross. Um and then Wait, remember, really gross? Not that sounds like another oh, dude, dream they job. fire they laid off so many people oh, okay. and then, then they hired me and I was just in this ghost town of of just people that just hated being there even though again it was supposed to be a playful place you'd be amazed how many places that are supposed to be fun are so serious and boring you know yeah, he, here's what i've gathered so far we have jeff harry here who are fifth grade sees big has this great dream of i see it that's what i want to do has the oomph to get into the industry and every you know the first few gigs it turns out you're like wait a second this is not big. This is not toys. This is not fun. What's happening? What is that, man? And that's what I felt like at every company. I felt like everyone was pretending. So I remember looking, you know, I remember having a, um, uh, like a, like a crisis, a quarter life crisis, because I was like, maybe it's not the toy industry I should go into. Oh my gosh, I have no idea what to do with my life. And I remember, you know, reading some random books by like Poe Bronson and, you know, listening to some Tony Robbins, which was painful at the time, um, and doing some swimming. And then, um, I remember coming across this job on Craigslist where it was like, do you want to be a Lego engineering instructor? And I had done this Lego thing when I was at Tufts University, and I was like, I could do that in the meantime. I'll just do that, you know? And I remember joining this group of seven nerds, all these dudes, and they were basically just like teaching kids engineering with Lego. That's all they were doing. And when I arrived, I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And I met this guy, Alex, and he was from Stanford, and he joined around the same time as me. And our boss was just kind of like this guy that just like liked Lego. He had only been introduced to Lego, you know, when he was 40 years old. So he is obsessed with it. He was a nerd himself. And then we were like, yo, man, we want to make this like a real gig. And he goes, okay, we'll make it a real gig. And we're like, well, what do we need to do to make it? And he goes, I don't know. You know, just, just start making stuff. Start bringing more people in or running more classes or whatever it is. Um, and then we just started doing that. And then once we made it a real gig, then we were like, yo, we want to actually make real money doing this. What do we need to do? And he's like, I don't know. Go to other states. 
So then we started going to other states (laughs) and we would just pick states that we thought were fun. Like I went down to LA because my sister lived there. I went down to San Diego because I wanted to learn how to surf. You know, you know, we went to Austin instead of Idaho because Austin sounded fun. And it went, I joined them in 2004 and it went from seven people to 400 people. And we taught, we, at one point we were teaching a hundred thousand kids a year. Um, yeah, dude. And we like taught a million people in like 15 years or more. And I was like, yo, dude. And all I was doing was just making it up as I went along, you know, and then COVID hit and, you know, a lot of us had to get uh, let go. Um, so that, that chapter of my life is now over, but it taught me so much about like, nobody knows what they're doing. Nobody knows what they're doing ever, ever. But then when someone is successful, then they write some book or they create some course and they're like, here's how to do everything. You should do it my way. And it's like, nah, dude, (laughs) we're all making it up as we go along. And I realized that, you know, I left at one point to do the Obama campaign and then came back to this Lego thing. It was called Playwell. And um, companies started reaching out and was like, yeah, do you do team building events? And I was like, yeah, of course we do. And I'm like, crap, I don't, we don't do team building events. We got to make it up. <laughs> so we would just make it up. And then they were like, do you do this other thing? And we'd be like, yeah, we do corporate events. We'll build something gigantic out of Lego for you. I've never done that before. And we would just say yes to stuff and then just figure it out. Because like, frankly, that is life, dude. It's just like, it's a lot of things that just appear and then you just figure it out. And I think Tying this in, I now like did a whole article and video about like playing through your uncertainty, especially right now. And it's this idea of just like letting go of what's right, what's wrong. Should I do this? Should I do that? Is this correct or is this not correct? And just being like that binary world never existed. But COVID, if anything, lifted the veil of BS on that. And it's just like, Yo, it was all uncertain. It was, no one ever knew what they were doing. But now you know. And now you're being asked to ask yourself really morally challenging questions like, do I want to do this job? You know, do I want to go see my friend? Because I might die if I go see my friend. So you have to like really now think about, you know, how, what is actually important in your life. And that's just kind of like, I felt like, I feel like kids play the whole time. They play with uncertainty and then just have a resilience of them of like, oh, this is over. Okay. All right. Now I'll do this thing. While whenever something dies for us, like all of our expectations for 2019, remember when everyone was like, 2020 is going to be our year, you know, like that is gone. And we've had to mourn that. That is the part that we've been so sad about is like, oh, all the things that I thought I was going to get are now gone. So now what am I going to do? I saw somewhere or someone alerted me to some meme somewhere that said everyone five years ago who made their five-year plan is completely wrong. <laughs> but, but think about it. Always your five-year plan is wrong because if you look back on your life, it, it's that whole, you know, I don't always like quoting Steve Jobs because you can be a, kind of an ass sometimes, but he was right in his Stanford talk where he was like, the dots only connect on the way back. They don't connect on the way forward. Yeah. So if you're going to linearly, you know, like, like plan out your life, 
you know it's not going to play out that way. It just never does. So I don't know why we choose to continue to do it this way. <laughs> That's fair. That's a good question. So you, so you are, you know, you start doing the team building and the the coaching and sort of like uh, helping companies, which you know, I mean, having talked to you for however long now, um, and seeing your present, I've seen some of your talks and in other interviews. Um, you have a personality that I would imagine thrives in this environment, and also that energy helps other people thrive, and. I, I think it was another interview you did. In my research, I heard you talk about how you often experience in your work that people are sort of waiting for that first person to to take the risk and kind of, you know, get up there and play. Yep. But then once everyone sees that first person, they're all all of a sudden unlocked and ready to go and they're comfortable. And that made me think to get your opinion on like what is that? caused by are we afraid of being judged like is play as we grow older sort of taught to be a negative thing where like we don't want to be that first person because we don't want to be you know i guess scolded or out of turn that's a good question i was thinking about this um and i was on this podcast with this dope person named dr i and we were talking about how messed up the school system is and we were basically saying like what do you learn in school what's the thing you learn most in school you learn to raise your hand. Like you spend 18 years of your life asking for permission, permission to go to the bathroom, permission to like go up and sharpen your pencil. Like you just are constantly asking for permission that is beaten into you. And then at the same time, they're also telling you, you got to think critically, but not in this classroom. Don't think critically. in this classroom. You got to follow these rules. But in life, you should think critically. And it's like, what are, you, what, what are you talking about, dude? So I think because we've been taught for so long that you have to get permission, you know, in one way or another, we're waiting for somebody to validate us. We're waiting for someone to be the first through the wall. Um, and I think of the – someone did a TED Talk about this. They, sh they showed – how movements are are organized and um they showed this festival where this guy was dancing and he's dancing and the whole ted talk is about how this guy's dancing and then the second and third person are the really important people because they're the ones that get everyone else to come and dance but i was like no you're missing the point that's not it it's that first guy so this first guy at this festival, random festival in Portland, he's just dancing. You can find this on YouTube. And he's dancing for like 10 minutes. And people are laughing at him and being like, that guy's drunk. That guy's high. Look at that guy. He's so ridiculous. Finally, these two people come over to dance with him. And they're kind of mocking him while they're dancing with him. But as they're dancing with him, then they're like, this is kind of fun. This is why we came to this festival in the first place. Everyone else is watching. So I'm just going to continue to dance with this guy. So then two other people start coming over and then a little bit more people come over. Him, and then within the span of I literally, literally two minutes, this guy is surrounded by a hundred people because everyone finally realized that the festival, what they were doing, which is sitting and watching and laughing at others was not fun anymore. Like it was never fun to begin with. And the only person actually having fun was that first guy. And once they saw how committed that guy was, they all showed up. And the greatest part about it is I think that guy left. That guy 
disappeared. He didn't take credit for it. He was just like, okay, I've created that and now I'm going to leave. And some of my favorite friends that, that I, I, I'm, you know, connect with are, are dancers where we will go on the dance floor, act like idiots, and then we'll leave as soon as the dance floor starts. Because we've done our job, which is to just create the party that everyone is waiting to come to, dude. They all are there, but they're just waiting for somebody to start it off. So I just feel like, well, why not I start it off? I love how you put that, that they're all waiting for that. They're all expecting it anyway. I so agree. I would imagine many of the companies you work with, I mean, you go to Microsoft, Adobe, the NFL, I mean, these organizations... I imagine they feel the same way, but I also imagine when you walk in or they, you know, you have that conversation about helping them out and you're like, yeah, I can help you with, with play. They got to be like, what, what is play? Like, what are you talking about? What do you mean by that? How do you, how do you overcome that? I, I would imagine there's an initial friction point there. Well, so the, the way I would do it from a business standpoint is I'm just <laughs> like, well, you know, so how's, How's, um, how's innovation? How's creativity? How's your collaboration? How is the communication with all your people? You know, and then they'll say all these things and it'll be like, you know, all that's play, right? All, all of that. Like, how did your organization start? If you ask any startup how their organization started and why, most of them are like, we started it because we just thought of this really cool idea and we just wanted to play to see if we could solve it. That is how your organization started. So what happened? What happened? When did you leave the playground for the last time? Because you've left it and now you have this serious, oh, we got to be, you know, a mature organization. And it's like, how's that working out for you? People don't feel like sharing. It's a scary sp- place. Everyone is, is bringing their facade to work. I think if anything, COVID has challenged a lot of people to be like, oh, do I even like my work? Or what, or even what parts of my work did I like? Oh, I liked hanging out with my friends. Oh, I liked connecting at meetings, but the rest of the work that I do, I hate this stuff. So like, you know, you get challenged to figure out like, what is actually fun? Marcus uh, Buckingham refers to this as what is your red thread work? What is the work that that you fall into flow where you forget about time, where like it energizes you. How much of the red thread work are you doing every day? And that's the challenge that I have for organizations. It's like, you know, what's happening? There's a reason you're asking me in here. So clearly there's a problem. So I'm just here to bring a method that is more playful and maybe it'll work, maybe it won't, but let's experiment. Let's see what happens because what you're doing right now is not working. I haven't heard of Red Thread, but what you described, I'm familiar with the con. Like, I think we all are when you put it that way of what is that thing we love doing? I love the the Red Thread. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll send you the article afterwards. It's super interesting because it's it's like there is something about your work right now that keeps you motivated every yeah. day. And, you know, for example, uh, with my girlfriend, she enjoys more than anything running meetings, running these large scale like like events where she's teaching a bunch of people. All that's gone now. So it's like, okay, now she's got to figure out what else is going to energize her to stay stay engaged in all the other work that she does, right? She got energy just being around people. Now you don't have people around you. So now you have to figure out like what what other ways can I get people around me so I build this energy so I can do the work that I love the most. 
So that's the challenge I would ask people. It's just like, not only is what is your red thread work, but what are the, what's the environment you have to create in order to provide yourself the ability to pursue the red thread work? That is fantastic. I think finding the red thread work, at least for me, I think that can be harder than it sounds. Do you experience that? Like just today, Mm -hmm. I was on a call and I got off the call and I had this feeling of, I guess, excitement. Like it was bubbling over and I just like had this huge smile on my face and I started shaking and I just kind of like giggled to myself. And I was like, and I stopped for a moment. I thought, wait, why? Why are you doing that? Like I, I wanted to like recognize it so I could figure it out, identify it so that I could like hone in more on that. But I thought, you know, that doesn't always happen. Like it's, I guess what I'm trying to say is how do we consistently like identify pieces of that red thread work so that we can be aware of it and and seek more of it? So I love this uh, piece by um, Elizabeth Gilbert. I wrote all about her recently and I I pretended to be her on a podcast. It was really weird. It was strange podcast. Um, So I had to embody her. So I had to do all this research about her. And it's like the old uh, book reports in school, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I had to, I had to um, channel her, which was weird. That was the podcast is you channel someone famous. So it's so strange. Um, And um, one of the things she says is she goes, she goes, forget passion. Stop following your passion. She's like, I don't believe in passion anymore. She goes, I say, follow your curiosity. And that, re- that resonates with me so much more because curiosity is like this small whisper. It's not something loud. It's not like this flashing lights of like, go this way. Because again, that's the whole, you know, is this the right direction or the wrong direction? Curiosity is just like, hey, let's do this thing, you know, and you have to get, it's so strange as a play person. I keep telling people you have to get bored enough Meaning like you have to stop binge watching Netflix or YouTube and go get me wrong. I do all that stuff, you know, but bored enough to a point where you hear the curiosity and then you have to pursue it and then you pursue it until it's not fun. And then you pursue something else, you know, and what's interesting, even what you said, where you were like, I was so excited and shaking. And then I tried to like understand and I was like, don't worry about understanding it. Just follow it. Just follow where it goes. Like a kid, just like, I'm going to do this. Why are you doing that? I don't know. I don't know why I'm doing it. I just want to do it. You know, like you ask kids all the time. And the thing that, that, that parents do that are just crushing the kids is when a kid is doing something fun and they're in flow, you know, they're in their play. And then someone's like, all right, Johnny, are you having fun? Are you having fun now, Johnny? Well, not anymore. Now that you just pointed out that I'm having fun, like don't break my flow. Just follow your curiosity. Follow the thing that's really exciting for that day, for that, for that hour, for that minute and see where that takes you. That's the fun part. That's what I think makes life worth living. If you think of your most memorable moments, they are moments of play where you're fully present. You don't have your phone. You're not recording it. You know, you're not like documenting it in any way. You're fully present. So why not follow your curiosity and find more of those moments of sheer joy and play and then let that guide you wherever that may lead. So it's almost just like follow your instinct, follow your gut. Don't even second guess it. Don't even try and analyze it. Just follow it. Just And, and the thing is, is each time you'll get better at hearing it. Because what I do, you know, both for businesses, but I also do this with individuals when I'm coaching, is I'm trying to have them tap back into their inner child. And what I mean by that is just simply listen 
to their inner child because their inner child is always like, let's play. Can we plank? Can we do this? Like it's constantly trying to play with you and you keep pushing it down because you're like, no, I got to be a serious adult. I got to do these things. This is what I should do today. I have responsibilities. And it's like, I'm not saying, you know, shirk your responsibilities, but give yourself some opportunities throughout the day to tap back into that. Because, um, you know, I run a workshop with my friend Lauren called Your Future is Where Your Fun Is. And what we do is we get people to realize what play they loved as a kid. And then we try to analyze the core values of that play. For example, like Lauren loves sardines, which is flipped hide and seek where everyone, one person hides and then other people pile in together with that person. And, you know, the last person has to find the sardines. But what she loves about it is it's creativity, collaboration, um, and connection. So we tie those core values to what play do you want to do now? And then people start to realize like, oh, yeah, I don't want to play sardines, but I want to play this other game now. And then that's what we're trying to do is tie, tie it to like your, your kid's self always has the answers. You have all the answers that you need. You don't really need to ask anybody else what you should be doing because you already know. You simply need to play enough to figure it out. That reminds me of, I would agree, because I, I think about when I watch just this weekend playing with my kids um, and when they asked me, to, you know, they wanted, they, my son scored big at a garage sale this weekend, got a huge bin of Legos. So that's all we were doing. Oh yeah. And he's a big Lego guy. And then my daughter was all in on it. But so they had all sorts of creations going. They had, you know, there were some sets that came in this giant bin and they had, were reimagining and setting up scenarios and, and they asked if I wanted to play and, you know, I, I was interested. Um, but it, it already had me thinking like, they asked me to do other things too. And there's certain things they want to do with me that I'm more interested in than others. And I think that goes back to my inner child. Like just as a kid, there were certain play activities that I was more into than others. Like mm-hmm. I love building Legos. Um, I played with them, but I think they do more imaginative scenarios than me. Whereas like, I'd rather just be like, let's build a city and just like concentrate on building it. Whereas they right. got the figures and they're doing voices and right. they're doing a whole right. thing. And it's just, when you said that, it kind of hit me. It was like, oh yeah. Like if I think about, I mean, I have the advantage of having kids and they, I have that lens coming back at me, but you, you start to say, oh, okay. I love doing this thing as a kid, but I was a little more into that, a little less into that. So I could see. But what's so interesting is you could still then bring your play into their world, Right. Like, let's say you didn't want to do the imaginative part, but you're like, but I can be the builder. Can I be the architect? Oh, I yeah. will build all the things for you. Or I will build some of the things for you. And they're like, sweet, because now you're playing a role, but you're still doing you, right? Yeah. And that's kind of like, how do you show up? You know, because because I think when I talk to, a, to parents and I'm like, when was the last time you played? And they go, oh, well, I play with my kids all the time. But I'm like, are you really playing? Or are you playing like... As an adult, being like, I'm now playing, but you're not really like kids want you to be silly. They want you to be fully there. They want you to be immersed, but not, you don't have to do it their way. You just have to do it in a way as they want to see that kid part of you, right? So I always challenge people to be like, tap at and what is, so for you, what was the, what was your favorite game you loved to play as a kid? Oh, man. That and, is a great and, and not game like anything, like with yeah. a game by 
you could go bike riding, like whatever. What's the favorite thing you love to do as a kid? I definitely loved to build, like I said, to build things out of Legos and not, and it's funny because my son's into the sets. I don't remember being into the sets. I remember I just wanted a giant bin of as many Legos as possible and whatever was in my mind, I would build. So it would be, you know, the colors wouldn't be right. Like I didn't care about that. I just wanted the structures to be built and to have things. So and I loved wh- doing and why, that. And why did you love doing that? What was it about that type of play that you loved so much? I think, and <laughs> I might be getting ahead here, but I think I, this is a, a attribute of me today. I love building, I love creating something out of nothing. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're what what, what else? Keep, keep going. I, I love creating stuff out of nothing. What else? Yeah, I, I, and I love, I, I'm imagination. I love just, and I guess that is creating something out of nothing, but I love imagining things and then, you know, trying to build them. Um, I just love that process, I think, of coming from nothing into something. Um, yeah, that these are that's a great question. I'm trying to think of anything else besides Legos. I mean, I was into... No, but stay with the, stay, just stay with the Lego thing, right? So you love the exploration part. You love the fact that you love to create something out of like nothing. Like, it was just I think part of it too is the, the opportunity. it. Yeah, well, yeah, the opportunity and the possibility. It, 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 you have this giant bin of Legos and you just, you get excited like, oh my gosh, the amazing things I can create from here. And obviously the more Legos, the more types of Legos, mm-hmm. you know, if I have all the different types that can allow for, you know, I want to make, I don't know, certain shapes or curves or, you know, Legos, there's all sorts of stuff. Um, my, my son, for example, the other day he was creating like a Star Wars inspired game but he had the different base plates spread out among the room and every base plate was a new planet well he he wanted to get more of different colors and stuff so he could create more planets and and that's kind of you know again the opportunity is what's exciting there like you can now create something out of nothing but the opportunity of and the possibility it's kind of endless especially as a kid right like yeah. i would just be excited by there are no limits yeah the limits are how many legos you have and yeah. then once you're out of legos then you figure out a way to continue you, you almost don't even acknowledge, you acknowledge the limits, but you're like the hell with it. Like, look how, look how excited you're getting, right? Oh, I like, know. You're, like, you're so, <laughs> ad- so like, let's just recap just for our own sake, right? Like, <laughs> like it's, it's about the, it's about having all these opportunities in front of you. It's about having endless possibilities. It's about having no limits. And then on top of all of that, then this idea that you come up with this crazy idea and then you're able to actualize it out of thin air and then it's right in front of you. So like, that's your play, right? Oh, you know so, what? Like, yeah, go ahead. I was just thinking, this is fascinating now because in a past life, I was what you would call a web developer, a software engineer coding. And that, while I no longer, I think I've evolved out of that. Well, I have. But I remember at the time, what I loved about it was it was an evolution of what we're just talking about. It was another way to create something out of nothing. There were no limits. I could literally, you know, have a, a web application running and, and doing things. And, you know, as we're talking about this now, my son has, I guess, not surprisingly, seemed to be very similar to me as a kid. And he has now started to teach himself coding, you know, kind of the basic stuff, the the more kid stuff. But I wonder if he has similar joys that I'm describing here that are, you know, having him go down that path. And one of the most inspiring things you could do for him or for, and frankly, this is a message for any parent is like kids watch your actions. They don't watch your words, dude. 
They so, so much watch their actions yeah. because they know BS. They know it at such a young age, dude. They know when you're lying. They know when you're saying something, but you're not doing it. They are constantly watching our actions. Um, and like one of the best things, I guess, that my parents did for me was to simply live their passion or live their curiosity and pursue it wholeheartedly. And I feel like when you are doing that, when you embrace that, I'm sure he's watching that and he's like, I love that. Like, that's doable. Because imagine the flip side, if you were doing a job that you hated, and then you came home and then you were angry about it, like, then they would, he would only think that's possible. So every time you pursue something, you are inspiring your kids, as well as everyone else that you connect with, frankly, in my opinion. That's so true. I mean, the, I think about this a lot, the impact we have on others, whether we realize it or not. Like basically, we all have this responsibility that we've been given of impacting those around us. Some impact more than others or more people than others, but we all do. And so it's kind of this like, how do you want to treat that? Like, do you want to have a good impact? Do you want to have a mediocre impact? And like, it's going to ebb and flow. But overall, I feel like, you know, I'm more aware than ever. I want to, especially for my kids, but I mean, for you, for all my guests, my podcast, for listeners, for anyone I interact with, you know, in professional life or personal life, like I want to have a good impact. I want to have yeah. a positive impact. Yeah. So, yeah. It's so interesting that we so badly want to change people. We spend so much of our lives trying to change people when that always is futile. But as soon as you let go of trying to change someone else and you're just focused on doing your thing, you inspire more people by simply coming into your own self and fully showing up. And I say this at the end of like my inner critic workshop that I run, where I'm like, there is someone out there right now that cannot show up until you show up. You know, and and I tie it to um, Goodwill Hunting, you know, uh, with Matt Damon when he was talking to Ben Affleck and Ben Affleck's characters telling him he's just like, you're sitting on a winning lotto ticket. You're sitting on this. Win you're like a genius sitting on a winning lotto ticket and you're too scared to cash it in. And that's the challenge I put out to people where I'm like, you are sitting on this gold mine of magnificent, unique superpowers, please cash those in because when you do, that will inspire somebody else to do it. But they can't show up until you show up, man. So what are you waiting for? You're not just doing it for you. Um, and it ties in with this quote I heard, like, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive because what the world needs is more people to come alive. And like, that is it, man. There's so many people that are in this deadness, especially in the corporate world. Um, I refer to it sometimes as affluent deadness, where you have everything. <laughs> you have everything. You have, you know, I know, I know people that are millionaires that are miserable. What are you doing being miserable? You can travel the world. I mean, not during COVID, but you can do whatever you want every day. And all you do is complain about your money, complain about your stuff. Um, you know, think about what you like, what someone else thinks of you and gossip about somebody else. And it's just like this affluent deadness where you have all this stuff, but you're so dead inside. And it's just like, and then I look at some of my other friends that are like, you know, 
Community organizers barely make any money to live, but they're fully present. They're fully engaged. My family in the Philippines that lives on a dirt floor, so much more fun to hang out with than my family in Manila that is rich because, because they know how to just chill and enjoy life at that very moment. They know how to play at this very moment. So I ask people all the time, I'm like, let go of that affluent deadness, dude, and come play with us because we're hanging out over here. I love your passion. <laughs> I do. I'm like, I'm like angry, man. I'm just so angry because, because it's like, you know when you're around like a horrible wedding where no one is having fun and you're like, dude, this is supposed to be a celebration. You know, even yeah, oh at my, yeah, it's frustrating. I, will, I will say this, even at my funeral, there better be play at my funeral. Yeah, you can mourn, but you better be playing because then you will have missed the point of my life if you are all just being all serious there, dude. Like, oh, it's like we don't have time, especially now with so many people dying. Like people are dying, dude, every day, you know, even in a more significant way. You don't have time to like think about trying to appease others just so you look good. You don't even like doing that. That is a that is a cool game that you played when you were 13 years old and you were trying to get acceptance from others. That is a boring ass game. Stop playing that game and just do you, man. That's so much more of an enjoyable ride. Amen. We don't have enough time. I couldn't agree more. I I find it's so funny. This topic is so much just kind of like what this podcast has become about, but everybody I talk to, and I'm curious if there's one for you, but it seems to usually be a physical thing, but the universe seems to always grab us or try and reach us. You know, whatever you believe in, wherever, it seems like life has a way of grabbing us and saying, wait a second, is this really what you want to do? Or, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I spoke with someone, um, Lydia Slaby, you know, she wonders if her, her cancer and then a subsequent unnecessary open heart surgery might have actually been, though, you know, wait a second, is do you want to be leading the life you're leading? Um, you know, maybe she was, she was a lawyer overworking and just realized she wasn't living the right life. Um, someone else, Laura Savage, broke her ACL while performing. And it's like, I mean, I could go on. Like I said, it seems to always be a physical manifestation, but the universe says, hey, wake up for a moment. You need to be listening to me right now. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, your passion here, I wonder, is, is there something in your life that sort of built this passion for like, hey, let's get out of the affluent, what'd you call it? The affluent deadness? Affluent deadness. Yeah. Affluent deadness. I like that. And I think that's a very kind way of putting it. But I think, I mean, a majority of us are there, right? Yeah. So, I mean, what, what made you so passionate about that? Did the universe try and grab you to, you know, make you stop in your tracks and pay attention? Well, it, it's, it's two things. I'm about to do this story, which I'm so nervous to do tomorrow for my friend, Marsha. It's called True Lives Stories Toronto, and I'm sharing a story of, of something in, I did in seventh grade. But the whole story is about belonging and how I so badly wanted to belong. And then finally, when I did belong, finally, when I was in the cool crowd, I felt so empty. I felt like I wasn't myself. I felt like I gave it all up in order to get accepted. And it, it saddened me so much that it made me become a recluse and just like go into my uh, basement and start making nerdy games just for myself 
you know, and then I just started inviting my friends over to play. And I was just like, yo, this is the one place where you don't have to be cool, where you don't have to front. You can just be your nerdy self. We're just playing nerdy games. You know, we're playing like we're building forts out of out of mattresses and just doing nerdy stuff. We're playing Monopoly for eight hours. Like, you know, you can do whatever you want here. Just don't bring your coolness in here because you don't need that here. And I think that is like driven my entire life's work is like, how do I create safe spaces for people to feel like they belong? Because I think that's ultimately what we're looking for is we're looking for people to see us and validate us. But as long as we constantly are looking for external validation, we're not going to be able to understand who we are, right? And I, I go back to this Elizabeth Gilbert quote where she goes, personal transformation happens when you get tired of your own bullshit. So it's just like COVID has challenged us to look at our own BS and be like, what is real? What do I actually care about? And what do I not? And I, friend, I remember my friend Tashan said this to me recently when we were talking about like anti-racism as we run a workshop around that. And she was just like, America is lying to itself right now, but the earth is telling the truth. And like, that's ultimately what is happening right now. The earth is telling us to slow down. It's telling us that we need to like really see what's important to not rush to like actually really figure out who we are and really have humanity for each other, you know, be humane towards each other. And America's trying to rush, like still trying to like continue to act like nothing's happened. And it's like, dude, you're sick. You should probably rest America. And America's like, no, no, I'm good. I'm fine. You're like, no, dude. You really got to relax. You know, New Zealand's like, oh, yeah, we, we had to relax and we were rested and now we're better, man. You should do the same. And we're like, no, no, no. We just got to rush. We got to open everything. We got to do things. It's just like, whoa, man. We, this is a great time to reflect on like our health care, on schools, on how we do everything, how we work and be like, how can we do this in a more humane sort of way? Because what, the way we're doing it right now is just not working for anybody. Absolutely. I've noticed, it's interesting, COVID has really drove that home for me. I was starting to feel it in the year or two prior of like, why am I always in a rush? I I noticed it most viscerally with driving. I'd be like, you know, if I miss the red light and have to wait in another red light to make the left turn, why does that matter? Like, I'm going to be what, uh, two minutes at maximum later Mm -hmm. to where I'm going or two minutes behind schedule? And, you know, or if I'm running to catch the L and the, mm-hmm. I've, I've done this many times, I run up as it's leaving and I think, oh, and it's like, I mean, especially if it's rush hour, there's another one coming three minutes later. Like, what does it matter? But I've, you know, so I started noticing that and I, I, I and I noticed this with my father too. He is very, and I realized I got this from him. He's very impatient and especially with driving and i say to him now we'll be in the car we'll be going somewhere and he'll be like oh you know they could have went i'm like what does it matter where where are we going we're going to get ice cream or you know what is it what does it matter and like i think about this all the time now where are we always so in a rush unless you're going to a birth or a death or you know something really bad an emergency there's really probably no reason for you to be just in such a rush and i feel like covid you know, again, just stopped us in our tracks. Like you said, it was like, Hey, maybe slow down. Seriously. 
And even even in a birth or death, they're, st- it's, they're still going to be there. The person's still going to be dead, so you can still go, you know, and the person still would have been born. Well, I meant if they're, go. like, on their way. No, 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 but, I'm, but even that, <laughs> like, 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 why, like, I just heard this recently where someone was like, we have to get kids back in school because they're already behind. And I was like, behind what? We're all behind. What are we behind? Like, what are we measuring? What are we rushing for and you know what I think it is, and this is so much tied to American capitalism, is my friend Angie Cole says this all the time. We have tied our productivity to our self worth. Yes, yes, yes. So when we're not producing, as right now, and as what happened at the beginning of quarantine, so many people felt like an, a, per, a piece of them had died because they were like, "I'm not being as productive." I'm not creating enough stuff, you know, and it's just like, who cares, you know? And I remember some people posting, I refer to them as pandemic perfectionists where they were like, I'm going to read like 80 books. I'm going to do this. I'm going to start a webinar. I'm going to start a podcast. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, become a great human being, you know? And I was just like, why? (laughs) Like, (laughs) I'm going to binge watch Avatar, The Last Airbender, because it's awesome. (laughs) <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. It's not going to improve me in any way, but it's just because it brings me happiness. It's just like, who are you competing against? Like, who are you trying to impress? There's no one to impress right now. We're all at home. That's why it's so interesting even with celebrities now. People are not impressed by celebrities right now because when they're posting about being at home, it's like, I don't want to hear about you. I'm making my own TikToks. I don't need to entertain you. I'm entertaining myself. So it's just like, you know, it's, it's challenging us in so many ways. And I love this cartoon that I've seen where, where there, someone's in a boardroom meeting with all these other corporate heads and they're like, uh-oh, I think they've realized what is actually important. You know, it's like, it's not our stuff. <laughs> you know <laughs> I love that I haven't seen that so it's like oh what you said about productivity being tied or our self-worth being tied to our productivity I am so passionate about that and I've spoken about it on this podcast in past episodes um, with Jackie Gadeen and others but about this is evidence so much in the way humans generally introduce themselves or talk about themselves it's what do you do or hey my friend Janine is a teacher or mm-hmm. my sister is a, and we go by profession because that's where we can then judge where they fit in our mind. Especially in America. This is yeah. very focused in America and the Western world. Yeah. Because if you look at places like Brazil or, you know, um, some places in the Caribbean or just like random places where people are much more chill, they do not ask. That is not the first thing they ask. If anything, we've imported that into there so that now they ask, but they only ask because of the American capitalism that we've taught people to do. But they themselves don't care. Like, like I remember I was in like Amsterdam and someone was talking about something. Oh, yeah, no, I think, I think this guy was – we were at some restaurant. It was me, my nephews, and a bunch of people. And this guy was just playing this instrument – And I remember my nephew coming up to him and he was like young. He was like seven or eight at the time, maybe a little bit older. And he was just like, oh, you know, why do you play that? You play that for work? And the guy's like, no, I just play this for fun. Like, like it was so interesting that this person did not get, I mean, my nephew did not get that this person was just doing it for fun. Yeah. You know, and I remember once, oh, this is so hilarious. I was speaking in China to a random group of students, 
like ages like 10 to 12 and everyone around me was like a physician or they were a mayor from the city and we were we came as a delegation i don't even know how i got looped in and then they were and then the kids these these kids they were they were at a school called construction elementary school and they asked me this in uh, Mandarin. And this one person asked me, and she was just like, I don't understand what you do. You, you play? Why? How is, that, how is that helpful for society? She was just like, I don't understand because it doesn't produce anything. And she was honest about it. She was like an 11-year-old. And then people started laughing. And then my answer was just like, because it helps people live a better life. And that was so foreign to her because she was like, what I, when I work, I create something. And this, I don't understand what you're creating. And I'm like, I'm creating connection, dude. I'm creating like all the things that make life worth living, the creativity, you know, the, you know, the collaboration, like the safe space for people to come up with amazing ideas that change the world. That's the environments I'm creating. You can't have that if everyone is being all serious. Yes, and we need more of what you're creating. So keep creating. I think about that all the time with my kids now, especially as my son, he's going to be 10. And like, you know, people are always, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or, you know, going to college or, you know, what are you interested in? And like, generally, that's all the the motivation behind asking those questions and and seeking answers is, well, what's going to be your job? What's your yep. career? Like that's yep. all it's geared toward. It's not what are you interested in to just enjoy yep. life. And I struggle with that because I'm like, I I don't want to have that sort of mentality. I don't yeah. want to be, you know, asking them, you know, it's just like, I don't know. I'm torn on college. You know, it's like, because th- that just seems to everything, you know, from like preschool on now is all like get into the right college. And it's like, it's just always get into the next thing. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's just a, it's just like I got to get in the now you have to test in the preschools. I got to get in the right preschool because he doesn't get in the right preschool. He's not going to get into the right college <laughs> and then his life is going to be horrible. And he's like, whoa, dude, you well, that's what it is. Tripping. Yeah, their, their life is going to be over. If they don't get in the right college. Tripping. And it's just like, yeah. where is that? all? That's all coming from like an anxiety fear place. Let's just let that go for a second and analyze that. But I challenge I challenge parents because my theory is. Adults ask kids what do they want to do when they grow up because those adults are not happy doing what they're doing and they're looking for ideas. That's part of the reason why they're they're like, maybe he has a better idea than I do. But then I think they also are dealing with their own trauma of being like, I'm defined by my job. So now I'm going to try to define this kid by this job. And instead, the challenge I would ask adults to do, the different question I would ask kids would be like, you know, if you could be any, if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you have? Like ask questions of possibilities, ask questions of like, you know, what, what do you wish to invent in the world? What, 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 you know, if you could create anything, what would you create? Like I ask these questions all the time of kids. Kids love to explore what is possible, you know? Um, you know, if you could travel back in time, when would you travel? Or would you travel back in time or travel to the future? And then when you get there, what would you do? Like, I ask those because those are playful questions that kids actually want to answer. They don't want to answer that boring question of, like, what they want to do when they grow up. They can feel you putting that anxiety on them. Don't put that anxiety on kids. Don't put that burden on them. They don't deserve that. 
They're having a good time. Don't put your affluent, um, you know, deadness on them. <laughs> like, you know, like, come on, man. Like, let them be kids. And frankly, let them teach you. They have more to teach you than you have to teach them sometimes. So, like, have some humility and just watch your kids because they are wise creatures that can drop knowledge on you like that because they can cut through your BS. Yes. I feel like so many times it's like what they say in the courtroom, like, oh, you know, objection, leading the witness. And I feel like that's what we're always doing with the kids is like, you know, we have these leading questions. Oh, and like, I love we, that. We want you to be thinking about this future and college and, you know, you're, you're important. And it's, that's the thing. I, I actually think we should be talking to them about their impact on the world, but the impact they're going to have in the world does not have to be the traditional route. Right. And arguably, probably better would be better if it wasn't the traditional route because maybe it's actually harder to make an impact the traditional route. I mean, I mean, you see the stories all the time. You can have an impact right now. The amount of food drives that I've seen coordinated by kids, not adults, but by kids, the amount of protests that I've seen organized by high school kids, not adults, but high school kids, like, come on, man. Like, just give them the freedom to play in the playground right? Um, there's this amazing play theorist and author named Gwen Gordon who talks about how people see the world. They either see the world as a playground, a safe space for them to create, a proving ground where they're constantly having to prove themselves to others, or a battleground where everyone is a threat. And it's just like, what world do you want to create for your kids? What, what type of ground do you want for them? Because every time you put burden and anxiety on them about the future, you are making it a world where they believe they ha it's just a proving ground. And for some people, it's even worse, where like they don't feel any level of safety, so they just see everyone as a threat. You know, you see that with a lot of conservatives, where they're just like, you know, like, Ugh, like you know, I sometimes feel for them because they see everyone else calling them stupid and just being like, well, I can't trust anyone else except for the people around me. Like they see everything really in a, like everyone is evil, which is really bad. Like you're either good or evil instead of embracing the complexity of people are complicated. Um, but, and it's really hard to create a world where kids feel like it's a playground, but simply asking a kid, like, what do you want to do? Like, I'm going to give you, someone did this, they were like, I'm going to give you $100 to a kid today, and you have to spend it. How do you want to spend it? And just watch what a kid will do. I saw this once, someone did this on YouTube, and the kid gave away 80% of the money. And I was like, oh, man, that was a lesson they learned right there, man. Like, you can teach these lessons all day long by allowing them to play and follow their curiosity and follow your own curiosity or you can follow the rote method of like, this is how I'm supposed to parent. And it's just, you know, like, why? Why go down that road? Everyone else goes down that road and they're miserable. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today. But also thank you for all your work to, you know, encourage all of us to build a more playful world, not just for our kids, but, you know, for us. Absolutely, man. This is just, oh, I just love this stuff. I just love this stuff. So uh, can, can I just say one last thing? Of course. Um, 
Oh, there's so much to say. <laughs> I guess I would leave it as this is like, this is such a complex, uncertain time. And I see so many people not having compassion for themselves and constantly trying to look for the right thing to do. And the reality is there's no right thing to do right now. And the harder thing to do is to do the work to figure out like what you want, like really understanding like what you want and really hearing that inner self and following that curious self of yours. So I just, I, I wish for people to be able to provide themselves that level of compassion so they can hear that inner self and, and start playing more. I wish that too. What a beautiful note to end on. Ah, I love this. You're amazing. Thanks for listening to We're Only Human. Before you go, I would love to know what you had for breakfast this morning. Just send me an email, tim at we'reonlyhumanpodcast.com and let me know what you had for breakfast this morning. Thanks.